Hello, and welcome to the new Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor. For more than seven years, over 300 interviews, I've been speaking with my colleagues in film, TV, and docs about the art and craft of editing. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, and a gorgeous shot of the timeline, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Today, we're speaking with Ryan Stevens-Harris, who edited the film Moonfall, alongside co-editor Adam Wolfe. As you'd expect from a Roland Emmerich feature, Moonfall is a big action-adventure film filled with VFX and interesting editorial challenges to discuss. Ryan discusses his rise up through the post team to the edit chair, the way all cinematic arts inform each other, the role of sound in world building, and how he directed a feature film with something his relatives dug up from a basement in Omaha, Nebraska. In my Zoom call with Ryan, he sat in front of two paintings on a wall. That's where our discussion begins. Seeing your paintings in the background, I also noticed that you have done a ton of other jobs in the filmmaking business. You've been a director, you've been a cinematographer, you've been a colorist, you did some sound work. Tell me about either your path to editing or what those things do for you as an editor to to have all those skill sets. That's very perceptive of you. That's totally correct. I, I started in the indie world, so you're often wearing a lot of different hats. But I came out of USC and at the film school there, they they really train you like you're going to be the next Spielberg or something. So I came out thinking, you know, I was going to direct my own films and everyone was going to be throwing money at you. It was a little bit of an awakening. I actually studied cinematography, but cutting material always came naturally. And um, I've always been very uh, fast and fluid with that. I'm one of those people that at least I feel, I don't know how you feel about it, but all the arts are kind of planets orbiting the same sun. And if you have an idea in your mind, sometimes any of the arts are just a tool to accomplish that. But yeah, I started out in drawing comic books and and that's how I got into filmmaking to begin with. It just was kind of a natural progression from there. It's also where all things converge, I find. How did you kind of move up through the ranks? What do you think it was that either he or your other, your co-editor saw in you that they felt like this dude's ready for the chair, man. Let's, let's get him in on this next project. Yeah. Well, I had worked with the producer, Harold Closer on a film called Discarnate. He was having some trouble with it. He had, you know, the director Mario Sorrenti is a famous fashion photographer. He was back in Italy shooting photos of Rihanna and all of these people and nobody was carrying the movie through. He had had two or three editors on it before. A partner of mine, collaborator John Michael Elfers was brought in to workshop the movie. And I came in and I started putting sound to everything and polishing the thing up to the point I would color it, add sound, do visual effects. It's really something when the filmmaker watches something and they don't feel like it's a train wreck. And so like we started to get the thing to sing and we had a very small team. It was just John and me. And we ended up shooting additional scenes for it. And the movie did very well on the horror indie circuit. And he was working on Independence Day at the time. And so he brought me in to kind of do the same thing on Midway. 
So Midway was, you know, a rollicking World War II action movie. I had never done anything like it, but it was the it was so cool. Uh, so I was doing a lot of sound work on that. So I had like three different accelerators with every airplane, you know, a high frequency one, a low frequency one, a real throaty one, and then all of this stuff from air shows. And it was just so fun and it came together really, really well. And I was asked to start to put together some alt edits. And when I would deliver something, it would really just be playing as I would, I was, I would give it over. So it wouldn't be like anything that was super rough, for instance, like they had two German editors that were on the film before and you watch their stuff and it feels like a very rough assembly. They really hadn't given it a good polish or a good try. And so I was able to, to do that on Midway, but a few of the things that I had added really bumped up how the thing was playing, especially with audiences. Audiences really loved that movie. And so the next film, Roland brought me in very early to start working on the previs. This was for Moonfall, heavy visual effects. So I was working on a lot of the previs sequences very, very early. And then they just had me carry over and start working on the film. I was there probably the earliest. It was just me in an editing office as COVID was going on. That's kind of the natural progression as to how it happened. So Roland doesn't work with storyboards, which is really interesting because I come from a background where I draw everything. So his main thing is this previs. And so it would come in and him and Pete Travers, the visual effects supervisor, would work on it extensively designing shots. I would basically get these animatics and I would be stealing stuff. I'd be slowing stuff down. I would be cutting out backgrounds. I'd be replacing things. So I would always try things outside the box. I would usually do a preliminary cut that would be like what obviously Roland envisioned. And then I would do something that might dramatize a moment a little more. Some of those things landed, but Roland is very particular after he gets an idea as to how he does it. So I would cut the whole thing, then I'd basically put all these sound in, and I would even record voices. So it would be me and like my wife, my daughter played one of the girls. <laughs> and so he would get these things back, you know, everybody would just be throwing exclamation points back at me like, this is like a whole movie, I don't know. <laughs> and so um, a lot of the sequences that are like really visual effects heavy, he had a chance to see pretty early how he wanted them to go. One of the big things in this movie is intercutting because you've got a bunch of threads going on. Were those things all intercut as scripted or did you find because of emotion or visuals or something you needed to change the way that the intercutting was happening between storylines? Yeah, well, because of COVID, Roland was in Montreal. And so we were getting all of the dailies back in LA. We put the whole sequence together first with, with very few intercuts. So to let certain things kind of play. Then we did a more radical version for Roland where everything was intercut more along the lines of the same story. As soon as Roland saw it, he wanted everything back the way it was in the script. So then we went back, recut everything back the way it was in the script. And what's funny is through the process of us working, we landed on that very first version that we showed Roland ages ago. And so it was a process. Roland's big thing is cause and effect. So I'll always be cutting to something. Whatever happens in the previous scene causes the next scene to happen. It's like his mantra. It's probably his most important thing in the editing room. One of the things that I love, especially for a younger editor who might be listening to this and hearing, oh, well, we went back to the way it was in the script, you know, after doing all this work, that was not work that was for nothing, right? There was great purpose in exploring something and not using it, right? Can you talk to me a little bit about maybe some of the things that you learned, even though you went back to an original way? 
There were a lot of things that were a lot more long-winded isn't the right word, but more of an assembly where it was more atmospheric, like them on the earth breathing. You only hear their oxygen masks and these huge meteors flying overhead. In the final film, that thing got whittled down to like next to nothing. And some things I'll always still miss, but Roland really likes to keep it brisk and really likes to move. He likes things elegant, so he doesn't want it to be like tons of edits all over the place, which he finds to be inelegant. He's always using the word, can we make this more elegant? And it's usually eliminating cuts, keeping it brisk, the coverage economical, and just getting from point A to point B in a nice, smooth way. I never felt like any of the work was lost more or less because there was a there's a lot of different moments in the movie where the process really mattered. Almost the journey of getting to where it finally was. One of the things that I think about a lot is that relationship with a director and notes and my ego, to be honest. And when I hear something like, uh, can we make this more elegant? I think that means that what I caught was not elegant. Okay. Let me think about this for a minute. <laughs> Talk to me about your thought process. And when you hear that, just how open to his suggestions, how open to new ideas you have to be when you hear notes. Well, Roland, bless his heart, is a, is a German guy. So I always try to keep that in my mind. You know, I would show him something and he'd be like, Ryan, this will never work. You know, <laughs> like if you, if you show him stuff and it's not like ready or polished or it's already singing, sometimes he'll just 86 it. And then you never get to go back to it. I, I don't take any of it personally at all. Mm -hmm. I think it's just because when I'm there, I always just feel like I'm trying to make the best version of the movie that that director wants to make. If I was directing the movie, it would be totally different. I mean, like to me, that's where you're really dying on the cross. So every decision, the director is on the hook for it. So I'm just trying to make his movie as best as I can. So if he wants to try something, I don't fight at all. I, tr I try it. Obviously we have 80 million versions that are already there. We already have those. So if he wants to try something, then we, we, we try it. Or if he really doesn't like something, we don't use it. But I'm always trying to make the best version of the movie that he wants to make. It changes as you progress, as you see things in context, as the movie kind of evolves and finds itself. The best version of itself six months ago is way different than the best version of itself now. To me, I think we were always just trying to make it a fun, big experience. I was always trying to make the sound just sound as big as possible. You know, gravity of the moon type stuff where we had these really big sound moments full of bass and full of LFE. And hopefully it would carry through from our editorial mix all the way through to the sound mix. So a lot of our early temp mixes that we would play for audiences had this huge amount of power. We had Greg Russell as the mixer on this, and I just love him because he's an effects guy. He, him and Tom Marks. Tom Marks is terrific also. But Greg always would bring so much chest to everything, which I just appreciate a ton. I'm really interested in the idea of shorts and you've cut a bunch of features and you go back to the shorts. What does short form get you? Does it flex new muscles? Is it just, hey, work, you know, more time in the chair? Why do shorts? Yeah, I think it depends on which short it is. So like I did Watchtower, which is from a close friend of mine. Usually that's what it is. It's like a close friend of mine who I've worked with before comes to me and will ask, again, coming from SC, coming from like this film school network, it's like everybody's going up at the same time. I like short form, actually. I mean, I like short form a lot. 
you mentioned directing work. I've been, I have a film that I shot on 35 millimeter that I've been making for the last three, four years. And I've been shooting it and cutting it on the side, you know? And so I ache for a short form project that I can just get out the door that can put to bed in a really perfect it and then get it out the door in a, in a high quality way. I tend to like to drift back and forth between anything I can get my hook into as a editor. Do you find that the, you're flexing different muscles when you're cutting doc stuff than when you're cutting narrative? Yeah, totally. How do they play into each other? What Do you learn something from cutting docs that you take in a narrative or vice versa? It's more of like a 3D or 4D type of editing with docs because I can bring anything in. Narrative is very, obviously, you know, you have these things you have to hit. Roland really wants things nice and clean, linear, typically. You know, he's not going to go for dream sequences or impressionistic stuff. But with a doc, it's like the thing I'm working on now is very Terrence Malick. It's like beautifully shot in anamorphic with these old vintage lenses that throw everything and so it's about um rural poverty so we slow the pace down a little bit but when we pick it up it's like we can bring anything in you comb through the footage in such a way whereas with a movie like moonfall you have 13 takes of a wide shot with three cameras and then roland watches it he's like i didn't even want to use this shot anyway whereas with a doc you comb through everything because i often find that you're hunting for moments um little things with the characters because often Often the editor I find is just is writing the story. Like on the doc I'm working on now, the director and I are working remotely. He gives me a pile of material and then I'm just working through it. We talk about, we have like a little jam board or a Trello board, but I mean, he's very, very just, he wants it to be this impressionistic thing. It really allows you to experiment and find elasticity between stuff that you might not uncover normally, especially in a narrative. But it is a little more slow moving because I find you're writing the story as you're going. Walter Murch says that every editor should get a writing credit on a doc. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. The directors asked me if I want something like that. I mean, I'm not trying to be a writer. I, the only stuff I write is stuff I want to direct. He asked me if I wanted like a producing credit. <laughs> I, mean, like, I know they, they're so thankful because the directors out there just shooting this massive stuff. And sometimes they're in the forest and they can't see out of it. Totally get it. Talk to me a little bit about building up the story so people care at the end. You know, they care for the characters when those big action scenes happen. The the most sympathetic character in the film, I think, the one that you're rooting for the most, is probably Casey's character, played by John Bradley. He's just a, a lovable everyman. I think just establishing some sort of sympathy early on for the character, obviously, is, is one of those really easy cheats. You know, making him very, like, down on his luck. Nobody's listening to him, whatever. And then he rises to the occasion. Casey was easily the person that people were most leaning towards, even in the screenings. And so late in the game, we actually decided to lean into that. And we actually, Roland went and reshot an ending with KC. And that's where the movie gets very high concept sci-fi, which I always felt like was a very strong way to go with the movie. You know, this Lovecraftian type of space cosmic horror. But that's my own indie film side talking. So, yeah. Talk to me about geography in editing and how you take this 2D, you know, medium and make it 3D for the audience. So like one of the early sequences that we worked on was the launch sequence. And there were a lot of things happening in that where the shuttle's taking off, then we're cutting to Sunny in the car, and then we're cutting back to the to the control center where everything's going haywire. Then guys are coming down the stairs as they're being floated up by the gravity. So there's all these things happening. The easiest way 
to establish the geography, I find is one with sound. Everything feels super deliberate. For instance, the shuttle's taking off, then bang, you hear the doors open, they explode open, then you hear the helicopter in front of them. Then they look over and the shuttle is rising. So using the sound to help you establish where you are, the big alarm is going off as they're like running down the stairs, then immediately hitting into sunny and boom, you hear the engine and he looks in his rearview mirror and then he hops out of the car and he's looking at the big gravity wave coming towards them. So sound, but also with Roland's coverage, he has these Roland-esque shots. We did a little montage of them in the edit room because they're just so great. They're the slow push-ins as the character is looking at the big thing. Coming from the indie world, I felt like I was paying my tuition in terms of scale because you know, the <laughs> scale was always so large that I do feel like it's very easy to figure out where you are. Like an extreme wide shot magnified by like a hundred, you know? It's really easy to figure out where things are in space with him. And like I said before, he doesn't like a ton of cuts. So a lot of the action is pretty clear. We're not going to these like Batman Begins super extreme close-ups where it's like, it's just hands moving or Jason Bourne shaky camera or anything like that. It's very, again, elegant and clean. Don't overcut. Then I, I, don't, I don't find that the audience has a hard time following his coverage. I've worked on action movies where in the past where they actually want the thing to be punchier or faster. And that's its own type of filmmaking, which is also fun to cut because you can make it more punchy. You just have a visceral agenda with a shot, you know, where it's just like this shot just looks aggressive, whether or not it's shaky or whatever. With Roland's stuff, I find that keeping the geography, it's all about just cutting for his coverage, playing into those shots where we reveal stuff in a dramatic way, almost like a Spielberg type of a way. So as we're moving through the moon, we're always discovering and playing up the drama is like when we first enter the moon, we first come in through that big, massive porthole, right? The crater, which we reveal is like this big tunnel. We first come in, it's like everything's dark. And we just hear this churning that's very mechanical, but also organic. So it's like we're in the belly of the beast and we don't know what we're going to discover. And then sometimes when you hard cut to boom, Patrick laying on the ground, we don't know where he is. And so we the audience be lost for a moment before revealing like, oh, he's in this inner chamber or this inner sanctum. Talk to me about how you tell a story that's so reliant on VFX when you don't have VFX. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I hate to keep bringing it up, but I mean, the, the sound really helps a ton. To me, the sound was like, okay, let's start off the movie so that when we cut to space, it's all conceptual, it's quiet. There is no sound in space, obviously. So it's just score and conceptual sound design. And then as we get further and further into the moon, then we go start to get into like our wonderland, right? So then it starts to just become full Star Wars as we get further and further into the moon. By the end of the movie, we got full sound, we have full, you know, laser blast, full engines, full everything. But it also gives us a way to kind of arc into it. Often we were working with rough previs, but also previs that we would then manipulate. So like I would bring it into After Effects, cut it out, manipulate it, bring it back in and boom. Then we have the, the swarm kind of growing out of the, out of whatever we need it to. The trick is just to basically get a roadmap for the visual effects team to then go full octane on. Sometimes that's hard just to communicate with them exactly what the thing should look like or be like. That's mainly all the previs did, but the sound really kind of informed what we're seeing 
probably more so than people would like to admit, which is which is really nice. As you think about directing something else or directing the thing that you're working on in post now, what are some of the things that you have learned being an editor that speak into your directing or even your cinematography? So the film I just did, we sh- I shot all on film on this expired 35 millimeter film stock that we actually found in a basement in Omaha, Nebraska. So we actually dug it up. This guy had 100,000 feet of film in this basement out in the American Midwest. My, I have family out there. Everybody has family in Nebraska or Wisconsin, but whatever. I have family out in Nebraska and my, my great uncle, Jerry, bless his heart, he went down and dug up all this film. And the reason I liked to shoot on film is because it's very formalist. So I'm really interested in this project that you're talking about. It sounds like a passion project you've been on for a long time. Describe that for us. So yeah, as I mentioned, I've been directing this film essentially just outside, you know, these big studio projects. It's something that I shot on 35 millimeter. Maybe I mentioned I went to USC. We were the last class to shoot film. And so I wanted to get back to kind of this formalist way of shooting. And it's a film called Moon Garden. <laughs> Moonfall and Moon Garden. Yeah. And it's a it's a dark fantasy film. It's like this twisted little Alice in Wonderland tale. I was fortunate enough, the whole film's about family. My, my daughter's in it, which is terrific. I was able to kind of bring our family unit into a project and work on something together, which is so terrific. Because I find that sometimes, you know, with long hours and stuff, you're just a shuttle shooting up into the atmosphere all alone. So it's nice for everybody to go together. But yeah, it's a real labor of love and it's really terrific. There's care in like every frame. I worked on it with a partner of mine, John Elfers. We've been collaborators since film school. And yeah, it's just been a real journey. So it'll be interesting to see how the film market has changed post-COVID. Hopefully we'll have it out either this year or the beginning of next year. I mean, the thing is cut and finished. I've screened for a lot of people. And it's a really beautiful piece. It'll just be uh, finishing up the sound mix. I'm pretty particular when it comes to that, but I have a bunch of close collaborators who are working together to make it sound as best as possible. Just like with Moonfall, I love these things to kind of be experiences, you know? There's very little dialogue, so I do hope that it's something like that, that people can sit and watch. And I do hope that I'm able to show it in the theater as much as I can. Yeah, I bet. Especially shot on 35 millimeter film. That's great. I know, I know. Uh, To get us back to Moonfall from Moon Garden, tell me a little bit about Roland. And as you know, from directing yourself and having a passion project and being a little too close to the material, is he the kind of guy that has a problem getting rid of stuff like that you suggest or that he suggests? Well, Roland has no problem killing his babies. He's really terrific at that. He can divorce himself from the shooting process and really just look at something from the outside looking in as an audience member. And he really likes to keep a quick pace. That's something that he was always pressing on us. I think the audience loves that personally. When stuff moves along, a lot of films nowadays, especially ones that are more art house, there's a lot of slow cinema out there, which I do appreciate, but not everybody does, especially like a casual moviegoer. Again, he's always just trying to keep it elegant, brisk, and moving along, which was definitely kind of a masterclass in how to go about certain things. And it was it was great to just to kind of learn about his aesthetic. Before we wrap things up, is there anything else? I think I've run through my questions. Is there anything you want to talk about? We've talked a lot about sounds. I was a sound designer on the film, and so it's very close to my heart. I always felt like the sounds of the of the swarm. You mentioned like the previs on the swarm. 
So the previs on the Swarm, I mean, that thing looked like a heavy metal haircut, just like half the movie. Everybody always wants everything to be organic and that's terrific. I love that. I'm like, yeah, organic. But I just felt like we had this really cool opportunity to turn this thing into this dark digital, dark math vortex of geometry that could be moving. So I started to build this kind of like little sound bed with all this different material to keep it very digital. They're always talking about the thing being intelligent and uh, just to give it a very unique character. And when I went and saw it just at a random AMC, I did feel like when that thing came in, I did feel like it was very unique. I'm glad that that at least is translated through because I always felt like if we could just make this big massive villain something unique then I feel like we've done a we've done a service to the whole movie. Well probably some indie horror sound editing probably paid off for you in cutting this film then. Horror films are all sound design. To me horror films are one of the one places where I still feel like there's a lot of stylized things going on. So I tend to gravitate towards something that has a dark bend. So I do harken back to a lot of that stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, there's been some very interesting, unique slasher films in the last couple of years. Anyhow, Ryan, thank you so much for chatting with us today. I feel like I learned a ton from you and I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to my guest, Ryan Stevens-Harris. Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me and feel free to reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. And so you don't miss out on all the great upcoming interviews on the Out of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast. And remember that if you have a friend in the film business or who aspires to be in the film business, make sure to tell them about the Art of the Cut podcast and blog.frame.io.